the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I see my name in shiny lights, yeah, a different city every night, oh, I, I swear, the world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. It's time to get down to business on the weekend's number one business program. Known as the king of networking, your host, Shalom Klein, has worked with thousands of entrepreneurs and created countless jobs. So, to success, let's get down to business. And indeed, we're all about small business, jobs, and entrepreneurship. And business, we talk a lot about business here. You're on with Get Down to Business, and I'm your host, Shalom Klein. Remember, you can always download podcasts from Get Down to Business on my website at shalomklein.com. And while you are there, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Shalom Klein. It's going to be a jam-packed week of content and information you will not want to miss, so let's jump right in. I'm very excited and thrilled and honored to be joined by Mike Sullivan, the president and CEO of Loomis, the country's leading challenger brand advertising agency for more than 30 years. He's helped some of the country's most successful companies build their brands, and he's the co-author of The Voice of the Underdog, How Challenger Brands Create Distinction by Thinking Culture First. First of all, Mike, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. So happy to be here. Absolutely. So I always love to get to know the person behind the microphone and the person behind the book as well. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Let's, uh, let's dive into why you got into this uh, line of work and what is it about challenger branding that gets you excited every morning to get going? Well, you know, it's interesting why I got into this, this line of work. I think it's, it's what I've always wanted to do. My dad was in this business and uh, kind of followed in his footsteps. And, uh, you know, I've, I've started it at the large ad agencies uh, working with, uh, gosh, you know, Fortune 500 clients that, you know, you would know the brands and you would know the names. And while those are a lot of fun to work on, we all enjoy, you know, having big budgets and, and uh, vast resources and all that good stuff. It, it turns out that challenger brands, the brands that are not number one in the marketplace, really uh, stimulate sort of my interest in creativity and, and really um, uh, just sort of light me up and all, all of my peers here at the agency. So that w- that's what we have decided to really focus on. And that's what we make a living out of uh, here at the Loomis Agency. So that indeed is your focus, challenger branding, and your, your agency is indeed focused on this. So how, what's the difference? How do you approach challenger brand differently and say a category leader? Well, it's a great question. So, you know, the, the first and foremost, challenger brands obviously don't have the resources of, of category leaders. You know, we think in terms of category leaders like, a, I don't know, McDonald's or a Coca-Cola, and they have just an embarrassment of riches when it comes to uh, marketing and distribution and sales and all that good stuff. Um, from a challenger brand perspective, you know, we, we can't spend our way to success. So we like to say we've got to outthink, not outspend the competition. Um, resources are limited, and so we can't replicate the strategies of the the market leaders. And it turns out we don't want to do that anyway. Uh, Challenger brands, you know, you think about a brand like, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, Red Bull, for example, since I talked about Coca-Cola. 
they didn't sneak up on the market uh, with a big advertising budget and advertise their way to success. They found a niche market and they really became important to that niche market. And then they started to uh, sort of cascade out from there. So they took their place among um, uh, action sports enthusiasts, which nobody was paying attention to at the time, developed a real allegiance around that, that, that core audience and then started to iterate and snuck up on a category and, and created a, a really a subcategory uh, all to its own, the energy uh, drink subcategory. And Red Bull came to really dominate that. And then, of course, you, you know, you see followers like uh, Monster jump in and, you know, they behave like challengers themselves and, and really rewrote the rules uh, according to their own playbook so that they could win. And so, as you can see, there's just a lot of energy and interest around that. You can't go and replicate the, the strategies of leaders. You've got to create your own when you're a challenger brand. We're chatting with Mike Selvin, president of Loomis, the country's leading challenger brand advertising agency. And together with his co-author, uh, Michael Tuggle, um, they wrote uh, The Voice and the Underdog, How Challenger Brands Create Distinction by Thinking Culture First. Um, which is fascinating. I read an article rising advantages to being an underdog. It's interesting. You've name dropped a couple of interesting organizations. So I have to ask, what would you say if one of those brands that you just mentioned, Coca-Cola, Apple, you know, would pick up the phone and say, you know, uh, Mike, you're, you're really, uh, you're really good at what you're doing. Can we, uh, can we hire you? What would your response be? That, that is another very good question, and, and I've been asked that before. Um, well, the, the truth is, you know, there are, are so many agencies out here in the, in the world that uh, it's, it's an awfully competitive uh, sort of field and business to be in. The, the odds of that happening are, are pretty low. If they did call, um, I, I think where we would, um, uh, what we would talk about is lining up with a particular product inside of their brands that is going to behave like a challenger brand. So obviously Coca-Cola comes to market with, all sorts of brands. Um, many of them are startup uh, in nature. And that's where we would fit. We would plug in and play uh, uh, from a, a challenger branding perspective. We, we would not be, uh, the Loomis agency would not be the right agency to be the lead agency for a company like Coca-Cola or General Motors or insert other category leader here. It's just not what we're set up to do. And so, you know, I would, you know, frankly, I would, I would move away from from a business like that. Uh, we're not equipped for it and, and we're not uh, oriented uh, towards it. And I think that brings up another really good point. Challenger brands really need to be very clear about who they are for and who they are not for. Uh, this idea of being all things to uh, all people um, is really a, it's a trap that a lot of entrepreneurs found, uh, uh, fall into. Uh, and it's very tempting, you know, when somebody comes and dangles a big piece of red meat in front of you, like a, a, a giant account, uh, to want to move off that, but you do it at your own peril. Um, your, your, your customers come to define you uh, based on what they understand about you. And if that's constantly moving around and shifting, um, it, it makes it very difficult for your, your audience to stay with you. And so um, my, my guidance to any challenger brand uh, company, any agency is to kind of stick to your knitting, really get focused on what you do, do that very well, uh, and don't deviate. Mike, uh, that's, that's really good advice, not just on challenger brands, but for uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners in general uh, to stay focused and do what you do best. Um, so that's, that's really, really great. So let's talk about the people within your agency, the people that you hire. It's a certain personality, isn't it? You know, people that are very focused on, on representing the underdog. Tell us a little bit about that and why they're attracted to your organization. 
Yeah, the, the, it is really a very different uh, professional, if you will. So when I was when I was younger, working at uh, much larger agencies, you know, you, you find professionals who very much identify themselves with the big, you know, uh, brand A, if you will. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a, there's a lot right with that. But what I like to look for um, in in folks that we bring into the Loomis agency is for somebody who's got a real heart for the marketing problem, helping clients get in there you know, kind of get gritty, get down to it, roll up your sleeves and solve the marketing problem and do it without throwing money at it. That's, that's the, that's the big difference uh, when you're working with challenger brands is the, the, you can't press the easy button and go, Oh, well, I just need another million or 10 million bucks. And let's just throw that at the problem. You've really got to be, you've got to have a head for really thinking through the problem. And by and large, those are the folks who show up uh, at the agency. The other thing that I would say about our agency, and this is, you know, the the subtitle to the book is how challenger brands create distinction by thinking culture first. Culture is so critically important to the performance of challenger brands, really any brand, but especially challenger brands. Um, And we've worked really hard as an organization to cultivate our own culture. What I would say to other challenger brands is while, while, while you're young, think very deliberately about the kind of culture that you're creating. Does it support what you represent as a brand. Those two things need to be congruent. We talk a lot about that in the book, the idea of culture, which informs behavior uh, uh, on the part of employees and everybody inside the organization, and then brand, which is what people think it's like to do business with you. In fact, I'll put those two things together real quick. A brand is what people think it's like to do business with you. And so that means you need to really think deliberately about the kind of people who are representing the brand? You know, what sort of behaviors do you want to inform uh, with your culture? And that's something that we we put a lot of thought into as an organization. I like to say we sort of glow in the dark around challenger brands, and that that turns out to be awfully attractive to folks who who share our interest in our mission and helping challenger brands win in the marketplace. Sure. Well, lots of reasons to get in touch with uh, Mike Sullivan over here from the Loomis Agency. Um, both uh, as uh, businesses as well as, uh, you know, people that want to be that change, uh, which is awesome. So, Mike, we're just about out of time, and I know everybody will want to pick up a copy of your book and get in touch with you to continue the conversation and learn more. Um, So how can we do that both on the book as well as the agency? Well, the book is out there on Amazon, which I think everybody knows about, The Voice of the Underdog, How Challenger Brands Create Distinction by Thinking Culture First. And then, of course, if they want to reach out to me, they can get a hold of me through our website at uh, theloomisagency.com. That's theloomisagency.com. Well, Mike Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us here on Get Down to Business, sharing uh, your uh, really fascinating insight on uh, challenger branding. And of course, again, I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of this fantastic read. It's called The Voice of the Underdog, How Challenger Brands Create Distinction by Th- by Thinking Culture. First came out uh, just a couple of years ago and is more relevant now than ever. Um, you can always get on my website, shalomkline.com. We link to all of our guests and all of our uh, fa- fascinating uh, subject matter experts. You get on my website, shalomkline.com. Of course, get on your favorite podcast app, uh, Google, Apple, wherever our podcast on subscribe, rate, review, and share, and get down to business. The show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. And speaking of those topics, got a lot more in store for you on this program. So don't touch that dial. We will be right back on the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. Ooh. 
Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business, jobs, and entrepreneurship. I've got a uh, certainly a very special treat in store for you. I'm joined by Suzanne Ogle, who is the CEO of the Southern Gas Association, um, who is certainly uh, knee-deep into the uh, perspectives on policy, legislation, and current events, as well as ideation that looks at the natural gas industry holistically, which is certainly very important. Suzanne, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on, Shalom. Absolutely. So I always love to get to know the person behind the microphone, understand who we're talking to and why you're so passionate about the work that you do, because I know you are. Um, Suzanne, take us behind the microphone. Who are you? You know, I grew up in California and moved out to Texas and accidentally got into the energy industry. It wasn't something that was ever on my radar before. But I, when I moved to Texas, I got there, and it, I, it's been a fantastic industry for me and a fantastic career. But also, you know, I feel really passionate about it because, you know, as you said, it, it's something I do feel passionate about. And, and that I feel like that because when you understand energy in its entirety, you can see how it can be used to do good for the world. And so I think there's a lot of misinformation or maybe even active disinformation around it. So that obviously makes me want to talk more about it. Absolutely. So certainly from an interesting um, sort of journey, again, raised in California, um, you have uh, landed in the energy industry. And something I heard you talk about in a, on a previous podcast is that what's what's fascinating you and probably continues and certainly brought you into the field, but continues is uh, the, that ability to flip a switch and have power, which which is really important in this day and age. You know, one of the one of the constants, even in our evolving um, work uh, dynamics is we need power and that and that allows everybody else to do what they what they do. So what is the Southern Gas Association? Tell us a little bit about your work on a day to day basis. Sure, absolutely. Uh, we're a trade association for natural gas industry. Our members are we call it all the way through the value chain. So from the wellhead to the burner tip. So that means all the way from exploration and production all the way through going to your home or to industrial or to power generation, because a lot of gas is used for power generation. Um, and so our members are, you know, they, every, every aspect of it and including engineering firms and, you know, we call those associate members, but our geography, our name is a little misleading because Southern Gas Association, uh, we're actually North America is where our membership base is all the way through from California to Rhode Island and up into Canada as well. So, uh, we have a really good perspective because we know what's going on in each different state, but we also understand how the energy system works in its entirety. And I think that's one of the things that's very confusing to the general public. They don't understand how the energy system works. And frankly, half of our industry understands their one aspect of it, and they don't um, they don't think about it in its entirety. And it has to work all the way together with in coordination with electric in order to make your switch come on at your house. And that's what SGA is all about is, you know, definitely bringing folks together and representing the industry as a whole um, and all of those little components, which is certainly very, very important. And uh, you could speak as a unified voice. So there's a couple of things I want to talk about. I obviously want to talk sure. about, you know, our, some, of the, some of the conversation about, uh, about climate and lower carbon future and so on. We'll get there in just a moment. But as we, as we advance our energy system, is our goal to replace 
what's old and get rid of it. Um, sort of how do you view your, um, your organization's work and the, the industry as a whole in, in, our, in, in what you're substituting and, and where you're evolving into? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that one of the things is it's, a, it's really, when I say misinformation, I think our industry believes that it sh- should be an all-inclusive system. And when you think about energy, what you're really looking for is the most energy, you want energy density and you want efficiency and it all has to be coordinated together. But, you know, it's, I always tell people when you hear the activists and the people talk about climate change, it's they want their goal is if your goal is clean energy, we have a aligned goal. If your goal is to get rid of fossil fuel, we do not have an aligned goal because it, the reality of getting to clean energy is going to take all of the different sources together to create the energy that the world needs in a way that's clean. And so natural gas is an essential part of it. And it's not going to go away. I mean, most of your electricity comes from natural gas. And as you move from coal, you're going to need more natural gas. But natural gas is also carbon negative. So you can use it for carbon capture and sequestration. You can use renewable natural gas, which is negative. And so as policy is created, it's really important to look at it holistically and what's going to create the power that we need, the energy security that we need, and then to be thinking more long-term about sustainability and the social well-being that people need. Because you can't have your energy be so expensive that people can't afford it, and you can't live from such a viewpoint of you can only think about America because, frankly, it's one atmosphere and the world's in it together. And so we need to be thinking about India and China and everybody else that needs energy. You can look at what's going on in Europe right now, um, you know, how vulnerable they were when they were not not having a really holistic plan. They moved too quickly. And so we we work as an Southern Gas Association is a training organization. We don't do any lobbying at all. That's just not our deal, right? But um, we try to make sure people have good information that's unbiased. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Again, I'm chatting with Susanna Lowe, the, uh, the Southern Gas Association um, CEO. We've been chatting a little bit about um, where the industry is going as a whole. And, you know, many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, small business owners, but certainly, uh, you know, some folks from Gen Z. And what I've discovered in hosting this show for over 10 years is that um, Gen Z and, and, you know, uh, it, it cares very much, not just about their own business, but also cares about the, the economy as a whole, cares about their community and so on. Suzanne, when we talk about endis- energy, is it something that, that you want to encourage people to, to get into or is it something sort of stay – Stay far away, and if you're already in, in in this as a family, maybe unlike yourself, Suzanne, um, that, that folks should just sort of continue in as an industry. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like I said, I didn't come from it, but I was fortunate no. enough to get into the industry. And I would tell every Gen Z and A and any other alphabet that's out there, this is a fantastic place to be. And if you are the best and brightest, come here because this is where you can make a difference in the world. We have a very purposeful job. Right. When it's cold in Chicago and I've been there and I have family that's in Chicago, so I know exactly what it's like. You need your heat to come on and um, you want to be assured that that's going to happen. And the fact of the matter is, is in December, PJM was very close to failing. And, you know, it's because as they're making policy, they're not investing in the infrastructure that's going to what we call harden the system and make sure that it has redundancy and reliability. And so if 
people move too fast with policy without understanding how the system works together. It's it's really could be life threatening for people, particularly in a city like Chicago or Minneapolis or somewhere else where heat is essential. And, you know, our industry is always going to come together. We serve the public and we're going to do everything we can to make it work. But that's why I think it's really important for young people to come in here because there is a lot of ton of new technology. The data information is better. The way that systems work are very different than when I came into it. And it needs the best and brightest people in the industry to be here. It's going to be here. Even though you hear people talk about it, the fact of the matter is you can't provide the energy that's needed in the way that it's needed. Um, How it's used might be slightly different, but uh, as a as a whole, natural gas is going to definitely be part of the system for a very long time. In the one minute that we have remaining, uh, Suzanne, you wrote a piece that uh, got to my attention of why every company must have an energy budget in 60 mm-hmm. seconds or less. What's what's the premise? Well, the premise of why you have to have an energy budget is because the cost of fuel is changing and um, the access to fuel is changing. And so you need to be able to plan for the different scenarios. And you have to be aware of what your local government is doing that could affect it. If you look at California as a perfect example, they have driven the cost of, uh, of energy and everything else up so high that it's unaffordable for people. And if you look at it specifically from if you're a small business or something like that, you know, your access to affordable energy is critical to you being able to stay in business and run a business that that is profitable. Um, You see companies moving to states like Kentucky because they have affordable fuel um, as opposed, and you see companies moving out of California as fast as they can go because they can't afford to be in business there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Suzanne, we are just about out of time and I've certainly enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to having you back on, but I know everybody's going to be interested in learning more about SGA, the Southern Gas Association. How can we learn more and get in touch with you? Uh, well, our website is the best place to start. So that's southerngas.org. Um, and certainly reach out to me personally. If you have any questions, I'm always happy to have a conversation. And if you hear something and you're wondering if it's true, let's sit down and unpack it. I think it's, you know, people need to be united. There's got to be less polarization in this world so that we can really solve the big challenges that we're dealing with. Amen to that. And I, I love the way you said about getting folks uh, into the industry. So lots of reasons to get in touch with Suzanne Ogle. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. We'll, we've got to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. Shalom. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business, jobs, and entrepreneurship. I'm thrilled to be joined by Frank Devine, the CEO of Accelerated Improvement Limited, and he has written a fantastic read, which I've been enjoying. It's called Rapid Mass Engagement, Driving Continuous Improvement Through Employee Culture Creation. Frank, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you, Sean. It's an honor to have you. So let's talk about um, what you do and why you're so passionate about doing it. Can you uh, give us a little bit of a glimpse behind the microphone of how you got started in this line of work? Yeah, well, I spent many years in corporate life trying to make uh, top-down culture change work. Um, and I got uh, eventually I got fed up with banging my head against a brick wall uh, and decided we needed a better way of doing this. And the book is a, the result of 40 years of experimentation. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's fantastic. And, and you, you, you highlight so many things that have been implemented successfully at brands such as Rolls-Royce, Coca-Cola, Boston Scientific and Johnson and Johnson, which is fantastic. So there's a couple of premises that you have 
um, in the book, which I want to make sure we're highlighting, including for our small business owners regarding improving key metrics, delivering organizational breakthroughs and increasing social mobility. We can't pack too much into our short conversation. What are some of the highlights that you think an entrepreneur listening to this program needs to know? Yeah, well, the first thing is the size of business is not an obstacle to doing this. In fact, um, the smaller the business, the more intimate the um, relationships and the connections you can create, and it's actually an advantage. So um, somebody um, starting out with a relatively small business, et cetera, should not be um, awed by, you know, the big names like the Coca-Cola, et cetera. It's actually more difficult for the big organizations than for the small ones. And in terms of making a social difference, um, the driving force behind this is is very personal. I I, um, I had to leave my own country, Ireland, um, at the age of 18, and my mother was a single mother, so she lost her whole family, in a sense, to emigration. And I want um, fewer mothers, if you like, to um, have that experience, of, to keep more jobs um, and create jobs in deprived areas in particular is a driving force for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, I'm chatting with Frank Devine, founder of Accelerated Improvement Limited, uh, which specializes in creating a high-performance, continuous improvement culture from the bottom up. And that's the key word, the bottom up. Um, in your book, which I hesitate to even call it a book because really it's a guide, um, you talk about how employees create and own their own high-performance culture. And I really appreciate what you just said, Frank, that it's not about the size of the business. Anybody can do this. So let's talk yes. practically. I love to give people homework assignments. What can a small business owner do to create that culture within their organization? Well, the, the first thing I, w- I would say is to recognize that um, your employees, whoever, whoever big or small you are, your, your employees have discretion over how much they give to the organization. And in effect, everybody who employs people is competing with their families, with their social life, with their sports interests, whatever it might be. So we have to think of it as uh, we've got to make it worthwhile for people to come to work. So they want to come to work. They enjoy coming to work and they grow and develop as people by coming to work and being part of success, if you like. So I think that's the first mindset that we are in competition for the attention of our own employees. And we have to try and win that competition, not at the expense of people's families and interests, but in a way that um, enhances all of that experience. Fantastic. And, uh, I know you use the term RME, which also happens to be connected to the title of the book, but um, yeah, rapid, rapid mass engagement. Yeah. What, yeah. what should, what should uh, our listeners uh, expect when they pick up a copy of rapid mass engagement? What are some of the, what are some of the highlights um, without sharing any of the secrets in our, in our short interview today? Um, well, I suppose the, um, the biggest single thing is culture change is available much quicker than conventional um, approaches uh, uh, say, you know, if you do the right things and you do them quickly enough and you do them with the right integrity and determination, it's amazing how quickly um, the culture can change. I talk in the book of um, the idea of bow wave, the bow wave effect. So sometimes when you throw a pebble into the into a lake, the actual waves uh, wash up on the other side of the of the shore. And there's so many things um, individual leaders can do, but, but more importantly, collectively, leaders and employees working together can do. And by the way, trade unions are not uh, an obstacle here. They're just a, a complication um, 
to create those kind of bow waves and change the culture pretty rapidly. Now, it does take longer to sustain it and keep it going through generations of new leaders and all that, but you can change the culture much quicker than people think. And that's, what the rapid, that's what the rapid means. The mass means all employees, not, not, a, not a selection of them. And the engagement is about getting to people at emotional levels, which we don't normally get to in business. All three of those acronyms, all three of those letters in the acronym, rapid mass engagement, it means a lot yeah. and there's meaning behind it. And I know that's what folks can uh, look forward to in rapid mass engagement when they pick it up. So, Frank, I really enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to having you back on real soon. But uh, uh, for now, how can we get in touch with you, your team? And of course, well, the, 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 the Accelerated Improvement website uh, is available. Obviously, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, there's a lot going on in relation to the book on LinkedIn and elsewhere. So um, they're probably the easiest ways. Do you want my email address? <laughs> uh, well, we'll link through um, through our show notes. Frank Devine from Rapid Mass Engagement. Um, absolutely appreciate you. Um, I know you're you're very responsive, and we'll make sure that everybody can get in touch with you. And of course, pick up a copy of the book on Amazon. Rapid Mass Engagement. All really important calls to action over here. Frank Devine, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with Thank our you, listeners. Sir. We'll Thank be right much. back. Pleasure. Bye bye. Welcome back to Get Done to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. And I'm thrilled to introduce you to the man who is possibly the only person left who will tell uh, who will tell you the entire truth about e-commerce, whether you like it or not. That's his tagline, and that's Chris Malta, who has been a successful business owner for more than 47 years, starting at the age of 15. He spent more than 30 of those years in e-commerce and online marketing. Can't wait to uh, to talk all about these topics, which I know are really of interest to all of our listeners. Um, so, Chris Malta, welcome to the program. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. Uh, I'd love to find out why you caught the bug at age 15 to get into, uh, into this world of entrepreneurship and, uh, and, and the rough-and-tumble world of business. Uh, well, I actually grew up in it. Uh, that's the kind of family I grew up in. Uh, everybody in my family owns a business. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, from the time I was a little kid, and if you look at my, my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my parents actually own their own separate companies. And in my family, there are, oh, man, real estate brokerages. There are furniture stores, restaurants, car, boat, RV dealerships. I mean, you name it. So growing up, every holiday party was everyone talking about business. You know, every birthday, same thing. So by the time I was 15, my mother actually registered my first corporation because I was too young to do it. So, yeah, it's just, it's been a lifelong thing. And now it's pretty cool because now you're teaching folks, um, which is awesome. I know you've taught over 800 live online e-commerce workshops, totaling more than 6,000 hours of, uh, of, of uh, live e-commerce mentoring. Um, you're a published business author. The book is His Scams Revealed, Ultimate Guide to Avoiding Scams for Work at Home, E-Biz Owners. And uh, you got a lot more uh, that we can just go on and on and on about. So you're saying, Chris, that you didn't get into this whole world of e-commerce just because of uh, the pandemic and you couldn't come into an office. You've actually been a believer in this topic. Uh, yeah. You know what? I started in e-commerce way back before it was e-commerce, around 1992. You know, I used NetNews Group's marketing there. I've been marketing in every which way you can in e-commerce ever since then. Okay. But um, yeah, the biggest problem, as you said, the biggest problem that I see is uh, it's such a scam market now. There's so many people taking so much money from people. 
And uh, one of the things that I'm trying to do is show everyone that you don't have to spend a lot of money and waste a lot of time with, you know, all these junk tools and apps and services. Uh, so that's kind of where I am right now. Sure. Well, perfect jumping off point. I mean, um, right now, economy, it's, it's, a, it's a weird economy. I mean, coming out of the pandemic, there's certainly a, a lot of things that have been in business for sure. Um, definitely a lot of things going on in the world. But I guess I know all of our listeners are asking this question of, can you make money online during inflation? You know, one of the things that I talk about with inflation is people still want to buy things. Okay, psychologically, it still makes people feel good to be able to buy things. Now, not just things they need, but things they want. But a lot of that has to do with price point. And this is something we always talk about. It wasn't just the workshops that I did for all those years. I've been teaching e-commerce for 10 years now. I've taught over 3,000 people. So basically, one of the things we talk about is watch your price points. We talk about retail pricing, making sure that whatever you're selling has a retail price between $35 and $125. $35 being the minimum, which is the point of diminishing returns. Okay, so if you sell something that costs less than 35 at retail, then you end up with having to sell too many of that product to sustain a business really well. But if you go over about 125, and this fluctuates, we call this the luxury line. Okay, the perception that people have once you hit 125 and go higher is, eh, you know, that sounds a little expensive. Below 125, people will say, yeah, I could put that on a card, no problem. But you go over that, it sounds too expensive to them. The luxury line used to waver around 250 or so. But if you take a look at the big stores, the way they inflation proof themselves, places like Walmart and Target and all those stores, probably better than 80 to 85% of everything they sell is between 35 and $125. Because they know that even in inflationary periods, which are going to come and go no matter what, we always rotate through these inflationary periods. Mm-hmm. And even so, if you price yourself properly, people will still buy because they want to feel normal. Okay, they want to be able to buy, but you just have to be careful of those price points. I'm chatting with the guru of everything e-commerce. That's Chris Malta. Uh, he's, he's written uh, quite a bit, uh, taught on this topic quite a bit. And Chris, we're, we're going to cut the break in about a minute. Um, but why, sure. why do you believe so many people fail at this line of work in, in, in online Uh, businesses and e-commerce two words quick and easy this is what people see all over all over youtube okay quick and easy it's going to be quick it's going to be easy you're going to make a ton of money by next week it's not true it's never been true but people want to believe it because quick and easy you know it sounds great right uh these people who sell these get rich packages on Amazon give us $35,000 and give me 50,000, you know, in the first or second month. Right. Uh, all of the shortcuts, Shalom, those are the problem. People don't understand that you actually have to work for the money that you, uh, that you earn, especially when you're building a business. And, uh, that's where the biggest downfall is, is people go for all the quick and easy stuff. And that's these, these people are taking them for a ride because, when you, when people say this is quick and easy, what they're going to do is they're going to give you information that is insufficient. It's not complete. So that you have to buy the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. What people really yeah. need to do is learn how to build and run a business. Sure. I'm chatting with Chris Malta, and I know that you promised to teach people the uh, the, the the hard truth about, uh, about e-commerce. And it is possible to make money, but it does require 
big takeaway over here. It does require hard work. Um, and uh, when we come back from our break, we're going to continue talking about what kind of hard work it takes and why folks need to get in touch with you because uh, I know you've got a lot of content out there that can be really, really valuable to many of you uh, amazing listeners to get down to business. So definitely check out my website, shalomkline.com. I'll link to Chris and all of his amazing work. But don't touch that dial because we're going to come right back, continue talking about e-commerce and the hard work needed to make good money. Welcome back to Get Down to Business. I've been chatting with the author of The Ultimate Guide to Avoiding Scams for Work at Home, eBiz Owners, as well as the uh, possibly the only person left who will tell you the entire truth about e-commerce, whether you like it or not. We've just been chatting with Chris Malt to continue our conversation. So, Chris, we don't have too much time left in our conversation, but I'm curious, what can people expect when they decide to get into e-commerce? How long should they allow? How much money should they put in? And uh, tell us, tell us that uh, a bit of that hard truth. Well, I can tell you that when I teach e-commerce, it is, uh, it's an 18-course education, Shalom. This took me three years to write. This is an education that uh, is made up of 120 sections. It was written to be a two-year degree program, colleges and universities. Okay? So that is the reality of learning a business. Now, growing up, I was lucky. I had mentors because of the family that I grew up in. I had people to tell me, no, you can't just pass this off on someone else. You have to learn how to do it. You know, I use the pizza shop example once in a while when I talk to people. If you're going to own a pizza shop, the first thing you need to know is how to find a good location. You've got to know how to decorate the place. You have to be able to order the equipment. You've got to be able to set up the POS system. You know, you've got to teach people how to, how to make the pizza. You need to know how to use the pizza ovens, how to clean the grease trap. When you own a business, you have to know everything about that business. Too much today, everyone is being told, hire virtual assistants. You know, use this program, use this program, this app, this tool, this this shipping company, do this, do that. And it's all supposed to sound simple, but it really isn't because nobody actually learns how to actually run a business. And, you know, this is about not just being able to choose the products that you need to sell online because that makes a big difference in profit margin. You need to choose, you know, your your business type. You need to be able to understand what keywords are, why and how they work if you're ever going to be found in a search engine. Um, you need to understand how to create content. And lately, this is one of my pet peeves lately. I've been seeing everyone talking about open AI and chat GPT. Like, uh, you know, AI is going to write all their marketing content for them. You know, which is, is it's just crazy. I mean, I've seen, I've seen all these people basically hopping up and down on YouTube saying, hey, you don't have to write marketing content anymore. Quick and easy. Guess what? Use, uh, use an AI. But guess what else? Google hates to be fooled. Google has a web spam team that has been in operation for over a decade, and their only job is to stop people from being fooled. They have their own AI called SpamBrain. SpamBrain can see AI-generated content coming from a mile away. So you use AIs to write your marketing content, Google's going to catch it, and you're going to end up in the trash heap of the rankings. Okay, so every time something like this comes along, these these so-called gurus on YouTube pop up and down and tell you, oh, this is going to be wonderful, it's going to be wonderful. It's just like when Article Spinners came out years ago. That was supposed to be the magic answer to never having to do your own content work ever again. 
and life would be beautiful all the time and money would well chris i don't want to share all the secrets because we want to send people (laughs) over to your website you've got a lot of resources now i understand that listeners of our short conversation are not going to be conferred with a two-year degree from you chris it's going to require a little bit more time and a little bit more work um but they can do it they can make money if you're willing to put the work in and you're willing to do it properly chris i want to make sure our listeners uh find your book find your content and get in touch with you how can we do that very simple, chrismalta.com. Uh, everything is there. Free video series uh, about e-commerce, free book. The e-commerce book is free, or the, uh, the spam book is free. Everything is free there. Uh, so, Everything's free, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to require some hard work. So, Chris, I appreciate you educating us on that. And I can't wait to have you back on to continue this conversation because the world is evolving. And our listeners, I know, want to learn more about how they can, how they can do well. But uh, like you said, Learn the hard truth. Um, so thank you, Chris, for joining us. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And that's a wrap for us here on the show. All about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. You can always get on my website, podcast app, uh, Apple, Google, uh, Spotify, wherever you would like. Just search for Get Down to Business. But make sure you rate, review, and share. It makes it easier for others to find out about the past 10 plus years of content. All about small business jobs and entrepreneurship to success. Let's get down to business. We'll talk to you next Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on AM560, The Answer, wherever podcasts may be found. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.